welcome to GEMcast. I'm your host, Christina Shenby, and I am so excited to be here with Leah Hatfield, who is our ED pharmacist, and we'll be talking about a topic that is just incredibly important in our emergency department population. So, Leah, welcome. Thank you, Christina. The topic that we're going to be covering today is adverse drug events. You may not realize the enormous extent of the problem that this poses to our older adults, but about 11 to 15 percent of older adults presenting to hospitals or offices have an adverse drug event. So you're seeing this all the time in the ED, whether you recognize it or not, and I'm sure I have missed it many times. And it's important because about half of these cases are preventable. People have looked at this. They found about one in six hospitalizations in older adults is for an adverse drug event, and that's up to one in three for adults age 75 and over. And in-hospital adverse drug events occur in about 11 to 12% of older adults. And again, here, older adult refers to 65 and over. There are five different types of adverse drug event. The first is an adverse drug reaction. So this would be a reaction that occurs at a therapeutic level. The second is a medication error, either from patient misdosing or misprescribing. Third is a therapeutic failure, so the medication just doesn't do what it's supposed to. And fourth would be a withdrawal event, so patients who are coming off of benzodiazepines or other medications and start to have withdrawal symptoms. And then fifth would be an overdose. And the most common one in older adults is going to be the adverse drug reactions. Some of the most serious complications or manifestations of adverse drug events are things like falls, orthostatic hypotension, heart failure, and delirium. And then the most common lethal complications would be GI bleed or intracranial hemorrhage from some of our our old friends, the anticoagulants, and then renal failure. If you look at the highest risk medications for preventable hospitalizations, so these are the biggies, the ones that send people to the hospital, those are antithrombotics, anti-diabetic medications, so causing a lot of hypoglycemia, um, coma, seizures, diuretics, and surprise, NSAIDs. NSAIDs that we use all the time that are available over the counter. NSAIDs are one of the big four medications for preventable hospital admissions. And that's one of the ones we're going to talk about specifically today. Other high-risk medications are things like antibiotics, neuroleptics, antihypertensive meds. So Leah, let's jump in. For ED providers, what are some of the medications that we should really think twice about before prescribing or recommending, or at least we should look closely at their med list before we prescribe this medication? So I think let's start with the first one that comes to mind for me is trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole or Bactrim, Bactrim or Septra being the brand names for that. So sulfamethoxazole trimethoprim was not actually originally a part of the medications that were included in the beers list. Oh, can we pause? Tell me what the beers list is. So the beers list is a um, frequently updated and well-published and referenced medication list that includes medications that should be um, avoided in the elderly population. It's all based off evidence-based studies and guidelines. It's updated every couple years, and a brand new update was just published in 2015. Thanks. Sure. So when we talk about sulfamethoxazole trimethoprim, even though it wasn't originally included as part of the beers list, there's a recently published study that came out in British Medical Journal in 2014 
that was published by Jurlink, and they actually found triple the risk of sudden cardiac death in patients who were co-prescribed sulfamethoxazole trimethoprim with either an ACE inhibitor or an angiotensin receptor blocker. We all know in emergency medicine that a huge number of our elderly patients are taking ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers. The finding in this study was actually independent of comorbidities, other medications, recent procedures, and other potential influencers or sudden uh, cardiac death. It's thought that the mechanism behind this interaction might be the potential for both drugs to increase the serum potassium. Patients on both drugs were found to be at greater risk for hospitalization for hyperkalemia. So when we think about Bactrim and patients who are taking either ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers, we might think about the safest thing would be to use an antibiotic other than sulfamethoxazole trimethoprim. If that's not possible, we definitely should consider a lower dose or a shorter duration of therapy for the drug. For example, for a simple UTI, rather than prescribing 10 days of Bactrim, we might want to consider only prescribing three. Another great step would be to increase monitoring for hyperkalemia. All of those things could go a long way toward mitigating this potentially dangerous interaction. Wow, so three times the risk of sudden cardiac death, and this was all from renal dysfunction as a result of the of the Bactrim receptor causing hyperkalemia. That's huge, especially when there are safe potentially safe alternatives. So what are some alternatives that we could use instead of the Bactrim? Great question. So when we think about alternatives, you obviously want to think about the underlying clinical indication first. So if we're thinking about a urinary tract infection, which is probably the most common reason for prescribing it in the older population, we would want to think about alternatives like macrobin, used to be on the beers list. We're going to talk about some updates with that in just a moment. Or maybe even just simple cephalexin. If you have a simple uh, E. coli UTI, most E. coli species are susceptible to cephalexin. It's cheap, readily available, and very safe in the older adult population. For skin and soft tissue infections, you may want to think about doxycycline or clindamycin as alternatives. That's great. And another one I just wanted to throw out for UTIs, in addition to the nitrofurantoin or macrobid and keflex or cephalexin, is phosphomycin. This is one that is kind of making a comeback a little bit. It's a really old drug. The nice part is that it's a single dose. So you can give one dose for uncomplicated UTI. So this is not for your septic, Foley catheter using pyelonephritis patient. (laughs) This is for a simple UTI. You can do a single dose of phosphomycin. The downside is that most places don't have sensitivity testing for it. So you don't know for sure if you've covered it, but I think it's a nice option for simple UTIs. Great. So Bactrim, be cautious, particularly in people who are on ACE inhibitors or ARBs. If you have to use it, use a smaller, cor- a shorter course or a lower dose and recommend frequent rechecks with their PCP for hyperkalemia. Consider alternatives for your UTIs and your soft tissue infections. Awesome. Number two, what's next? So what's next is going to be the NSAIDs. So as Christina introduced earlier in our podcast, the NSAIDs are one of the most top four most frequent offenders for adverse drug reactions or reasons for hospitalization in older adults. So the rationale behind the increased potential for danger with NSAIDs is an increased potential for GI bleeding or peptic ulcer disease, particularly in some high-risk groups. So all patients over 75 years of age and any who are also taking corticosteroids or anticoagulants. These drugs may predispose the patients to an increased potential for GI bleeding or peptic ulcer disease. We also have to think about patients with a history of heart failure. The NSAIDs predispose our heart failure patients to risk of heart failure exacerbation, mostly by increased fluid retention. 
Based on the updated 2015 Beers criteria, both oral and parenteral NSAIDs, so this includes ibuprofen and ketorolac, which we use all day long in emergency medicine, should be avoided entirely in patients with chronic kidney disease stage 4 or less, meaning those patients who present with a GFR or creatinine clearance of less than 30 mils per minute due to an increased risk for acute kidney injury and potential for further decline in renal function. There are some alternative recommendations. So things that we want to think about in our older adults that might require NSAIDs would just be simple acetaminophen for mild to moderate pain, especially in acute injuries, or ibuprofen prescribed in conjunction with a PPI for gastroprotection in those patients with a GFR greater than 30 mils per minute. Again, in those patients with GFR less than 30 mils per minute, we'd want to avoid NSAIDs if at all possible. NSAIDs are such a huge issue, partly because patients may be taking them and not telling you. They don't consider it a prescription medication. And we're just used to using it like water. You come in with a kidney stone, here's your shot of Toradol, go home on Motrin 600 Q6. And we don't really think anything about it. But in older adults who are prone to renal failure, the Bactrim and the NSAIDs both can induce worsening renal function. And then in the case of the NSAIDs, cause heart failure exacerbations, or also hyperkalemia, just like the Bactrim, and especially in conjunction with other medications like Lasix or things like that. I actually had a patient not too long ago who had been started recently on Lasix and I think was on some other potentially renal-impairing medications, came in with a potassium of 10. So this is a real thing. This does happen, and it causes hospitalizations, and as we saw with Bactrim, it can cause cardiac death as well. So instead of the NSAIDs, we can consider Tylenol, And then particularly, we want to be cautious in those with GFR less than 30 and those with heart failure history as well. Awesome. Number three, what's next? So coming up next will be the benzodiazepines. We still in emergency medicine have a lot of reason to potentially consider giving benzodiazepines to older adults. We may have patients with severe anxiety, patients who come in with agitation, patients who come in with a history of seizures. And so what we know about benzodiazepines is that older adults exhibit physiologically increased sensitivity to all benzodiazepines. They also demonstrate decreased metabolism, especially for the benzodiazepines that are longer acting. Benzodiazepines also increase the potential for altered mental status and delirium. And what we worry about particularly in our older adult population is the potential for falls and fractures. They also might increase the potential if patients are going home with them or traveling around with them for motor vehicle crashes or other traumatic injuries. There are clinical settings though where they still may be appropriate in the acute setting for older adults. So when are they okay? Well, they're okay anytime a patient of course has an acute seizure. They're still considered first line therapy to break seizure activity. They're also still appropriate for patients that may be experiencing benzodiazepine or alcohol withdrawal. Occasionally we can't get away from using them in patients that present with severe panic attack or severe generalized anxiety disorder. We need something acutely um, to help the patient be more comfortable and to get them under control from a clinical standpoint. And also periprocedural anesthesia. Procedural sedation has really evolved over the last 10 years and benzos used to be used more commonly, but I think we're moving away and moving towards things like propofol, which is nice because it has such a short half-life. The problem with benzos and using it in the ED is that it can cause a really prolonged effect. So when you admit the patient, they may stay delirious for a day or so afterwards. So use it cautiously if you're using it for, for example, agitation in a patient with delirium or dementia. Try to use other alternatives first 
like low-dose Haldol and use benzo kind of as a second or third tier medication because of the potential for prolonged delirium. So what can we use for some of these other indications instead? So great question. So let's talk about the patient that has severe anxiety disorder or severe panic attack, because I feel like that is one of the clinical scenarios where this comes up most frequently in emergency medicine. For those patients that do have severe anxiety disorder or severe panic attack, you can consider other alternatives that are safer in the older adult population. Many of these are maintenance medications, so they're not going to work in the long term. Or, um, I'm sorry, in the short term, um, but there are certainly things that we can consider for long-term maintenance. And those are drugs like buspirone or buspar or the SSRI or SNRI agents. The only SSRI that we want to be particularly cautious to avoid in the elderly population is paroxetine. But outside of that, many of our SSRIs and SNRIs are considered appropriate for management of anxiety, even in our older adult population. And what is it about paroxetine that's dangerous? That's an excellent question. So paroxetine has a much longer half-life, and it's actually been evidence-based associated to cause increased amounts of altered mental status and adverse drug events, particularly in the older adult population. Interesting. So Bactrim, NSAIDs, benzos. Number four, what's next? Number four is the anticholinergics. So the anticholinergics are another drug class that are extremely useful and popular in the emergency medicine community. The problem is there's a pretty broad-spanning recommendation with older adults um, for almost all of the anticholinergics to avoid use when possible. This includes such drugs as first-generation antihistamines, which would be things like diphenhydramine, chlorpheniramine, which is available in many of the -the over-the-counter cough and cold preparations, hydroxazine, and meclozine. It also includes drugs like antiemetics, such as promethazine, and antispasmodic agents, such as hyoscyamine or belladonna compounds, which in some facilities are still used in our GI cocktail preparations. So if, you're, if your GI cocktail preparation has hyoscyamine or the belladonna compounds, maybe you should not use the premixed GI cocktail and just give the other components separately, like the Maalox and the viscous lidocaine. Correct. So if your institution's compound includes either the belladonna alkaloids or hyoscyamine, you can always order the other individual agents separately. You can always order your viscous lidocaine, your mylanta, you can order things like sucrophate as alternatives, um, and tremendously successful for patients without exposing them to risk for adverse drug reaction. And what are those risks? So what we see in older adults is they, what creates all of the adverse events is they exhibit significantly decreased clearance for anticholinergic agents. So what we see is increased incidence of dry mouth, constipation, and most importantly, more drowsiness and confusion. For all of these drugs, the good news is that there are actually some alternative recommendations available. So for sinus and allergy-related symptoms or even mild to moderate allergic reactions, the new recommendations include using normal saline, nasal drops or nasal spray for congestion, second-generation PO antihistamines like loratadine, cetirizine, or fexofenadine, that's Claritin, Zyrtec, and Allegra for brand names, or intranasal steroid nasal sprays that have very minimal systemic absorption, and that's beclomethazone or fluticasone, and those are available over the counter. Now, two of the ones that you mentioned we use all the time, actually a bunch of them we do, but Benadryl for diphenhydramine, we use that a lot for allergic reactions. 
Is there anything else safer we should be using, or should we continue to use it for that indication? That's a great question. So I think in an acute setting, when you're looking at allergic reaction, you need to look at the degree of the allergic reaction that you're talking about. For anaphylaxis or anaphylactic shock, certainly there is no better alternative than diphenhydramine, and I would unquestionably still use it in that circumstance. For mild to moderate allergic reaction, where patients are presenting with itching and hives, but no respiratory symptoms or involvement, I would suggest using cetirizine or Zyrtec as an alternative. And that would not have the same sedating effect as the as the diphenhydramine. Correct. So cetirizine has about a 10 to 15% incidence of drowsiness within the population, but the degree of uh, drowsiness is significantly less than what we observe with diphenhydramine. And then one of the other ones you mentioned was Phenergan, which we use all the time for nausea. So what are some alternatives for that that's safer? The best alternative are the newer anti-emetic agents most prevalently in the emergency medicine community on Dancitron or Zofran. And of course, Zofran is available in tablet, disintegrating tablet, injectable IM um, format or liquid format. So a lot of flexibility in terms of using it in our older population. And then another one you mentioned was meclizine. So we use that a lot for people with benign positional paroxysmal vertigo. Is there any other safer alternative for that indication? So for vertigo, when I have patients that have a great clinical exam for vertigo, I feel like meclizine still is more clinically efficacious than many of the alternatives. What I recommend in the older adult population is a lower dose of meclizine. So we often use 25 to 50 milligram doses. I would recommend using 6.25 to 12.5 milligram doses in the older adult population and spreading out your dosing interval. So rather than using it every six hours, I would recommend using it every eight to 12 hours instead. That's great. That's hugely helpful. So we can still use it for those indications, but just use a lower dose and a lower frequency. Perfect. Number five is one of my favorite drugs for UTIs, nitrofurantoin or macrobid. And this, sadly, was on the 2012 beers list, but now in the most recent update has been more widely recommended. Can you talk about that? Sure. So the controversy over nitrofurantoin or macrobid in the elderly seems like it's gone on for the majority of the past decade. And so there's been conflicting evidence that's come out as to, is this safe for patients with impaired kidney function, so chronic kidney disease? Does it cause increased incidence of altered mental status? Does it cause increased incidence of delirium? I look at that as which came first, the chicken or the egg. So is it the UTI itself that's causing that delirium or that agitation, altered mental status, or is it the drug? And I don't think we had really clear answers on that until just recently. But recently, there is some more evidence that's been published, and even though the drug was on the 2012 beers list, the 2015 beers list has actually edited their recommendations. So based on new evidence, we've found that it's actually safe to prescribe macrobid in patients with a creatinine clearance greater than 30. The old recommendation was to avoid in patients with creatinine clearance less than 60. So I think for the vast majority of our older adult population, with the exception of those with creatinine clearance less than 30, it's actually quite safe and very effective to consider using nitrofurantoin or macrobid for our simple UTI patients. And this is great. Honestly, listeners, if you take one thing from this podcast, it's start using macrobid or nitrofurantoin more for your patients, or at least consider it in your arsenal. Because a lot of the other medications that we use for UTI have potential problems. We've already talked about Bactrim, uh, sulfamethoxazole, trimeth. I should just say Bactrim. I'm just going to give up on saying the generic name. Bactrim has a lot of side effects, such as the renal dysfunction, etc. But then also we sometimes worry about fluoroquinolones in older adults, 
Leah, can you talk about that for a minute? So fluoroquinolones, we worry about older adults for a number of reasons. So fluoroquinolones have been associated with multiple adverse outcomes. They're associated with potential trauma or changes in our soft tissue cartilage. So many of our adult patient population experiences muscle pain, joint tenderness, uh, musculoskeletal symptoms when we use fluoroquinolones. They're also associated with increasing significance of issues in patients with underlying renal disease. And so if you forget to renally dose them or extend out, change your dose and extend out your dosing interval, they're associated with increased incidence of acute kidney injury. They've also had some association with changes in blood glucose. Um, and many of our adult or older adult population are type 2 diabetics in the United States. And so I think that's another patient population that you need to be cautious with use of fluoroquinolones. And then, of course, there's always the ever-prevalent concern of QTC changes. Um, so QTC mm. prolongation is something that is associated with fluoroquinolones. They are safe drugs, but there are a lot of extra precautions that we need to take when we're using them in the older adult population. That's awesome. And Macrobed, by contrast, has very good coverage in terms of sensitivity and resistance patterns, at least in our area. It's something like 95 to 98% sensitive. The only caution is, obviously, you're not going to use this in somebody who's very sick and septic and not going to use it in somebody who has pyelonephritis. It just doesn't have good parenchymal penetration. But for a simple UTI, it's a great option, and it has fewer side effects than some of our other common options. Leah, thank you so much. That was an awesome introduction to some of the medications that we use all the time. Now, along with the recent beers update, Joseph Hanlon and colleagues published in the Journal of the American Geriatric Society some alternatives. And I love this. It's like, instead of using this drug, use this drug. It reminds me of those things you see in magazines. Instead of eating this donut with bacon, have some celery with carrots. So we're going to go through some of the really common ones that we use all the time. The first class is the antihistamines the diphenhydramine, hydroxazine, promethazine, and they say these are high-risk medications and alternatives would be? For these, your alternatives, again, are going to be for your sinus symptoms, allergy-related symptoms and congestion, intranasal normal saline, so ocean nasal spray, saline drops, second-generation antihistamines, so cetirizine, fexofenadine, and loratamine, or loratidine, and then intranasal steroids, and those, again, are available over-the-counter now, both beclomethazone and fluticasone. The next one that is on their list that we use commonly are the NSAIDs, and we already talked a little bit about this, the indomethacin and toradol, and instead of these, we should use? So in most cases, for acute incidents, you want to focus on things like acetaminophen as an alternative. If you do have patients that require long-term use with NSAIDs, other things that you can continue or you can consider are your COX-selective NSAIDs, so those COX-2 inhibitors rather than ibuprofen or a short course of low-dose ibuprofen for an acute injury as well would be acceptable. Good. And then the next class that they mention as high risk is the benzodiazepines, particularly as a falls risk, and their alternatives include? So again, the alternatives in these, when we're looking at treating anxiety, your alternatives are going to include buspirone or your SSRIs and SNRIs excluding paroxetine. And then antipsychotics, and for the alternatives, I'm just going to read what they wrote because this is great. They said, for delirium, use short-term antipsychotics such as uh, haloperidol or quetiapine should be restricted to individuals who are distressed or considered a risk to themselves or others and in whom verbal and nonverbal de-escalation techniques are ineffective or inappropriate. 
So they're implying, obviously, we want to try first to de-escalate verbally or with distraction. And then if we have to, short-term use of antipsychotics like haloperidol or quetiapine are reasonable. And then for schizophrenia, they want to use non-anticholinergic agents such as risperidone or quetiapine. And again, for the shortest duration possible. This next one I hadn't really thought about. H2 blockers. What's the deal with that and what should we use instead? So with H2 blockers, again, very commonly prescribed class of medications, both on the inpatient and outpatient basis, H2 blockers in adults are associated with a couple problems. So one, they're associated with higher incidence of dementia, and two, there's also some association with H2 blockers in development of thrombocytopenia. So in our older adult population, rather than using H2 blockers, if something is needed on a chronic basis, the recommendation is to convert the patient to a proton pump inhibitor. Awesome. So we've done an in-depth look at five different medications that we use every single day, then gone over the alternative options for some of the beers list medications. I want to end just discussing some of the risk factors for adverse drug events and then things we can do to prevent it. Risk factors, age is a huge one, and this has to do with the pharmacokinetic changes uh, with age. So Things like hepatic metabolism, renal excretion, and also the change in volume of distribution of medication because of the decreased lean body weight to body fat ratio. And then also older adults have lower levels of serum binding proteins, so there's kind of just more drug available. Age is probably the biggest risk factor. Female gender, and then number of medications is a huge one. Older adults seen in clinics on average are on six to eight medications. The more medications you're on, the higher risk you are for having an adverse drug event. And this has partially to do with interactions of the medications within the body and P450s and things like that. But then also just a higher risk of making a mistake and confusing your medication and taking the wrong things or missing doses or doubling up on doses, etc. Fourth risk factor is comorbid diseases. So things like cardiovascular disease, diabetes, cancer, depression, chronic renal failure we've mentioned is a huge one, and then liver disease and dementia. And then the last one is frailty. This refers to a syndrome of having decreased physiologic reserve, things like falls. uh, It's associated with other syndromes like instability, limitation of activities of daily living, etc. But those patients who are already frail and at higher risk for falls, starting these medications can put them at even greater risk. And then what can we do in the ED to help reduce the risk of adverse drug events? The first step is just being more aware of it. Be aware of the high risk of adverse drug events in these patients. It's one of those things that if you don't think about it, you won't catch it. And then secondly, find out what medications the patient is on. It's easy for us to prescribe, you know, say, hey, go up on your Lasix or start this NSAID without really knowing what other medications they're on that could lead to impaired renal function. And then ask about changes to their medications or new medications that may have contributed to their visit to the ED. If they had syncope or if they even had a mechanical fall, you know, if you step out of your car and trip on the sidewalk as a healthy 40-year-old, probably won't trip and fall down and hit your head. But if you were on a bunch of medications that are making you less stable or causing some orthostatic changes, you step out of your car and get unsteady and trip. So even when it's a mechanical fall, ask about their medications or or changes to them. And then be on alert for high-risk medications that we mentioned. And then also look for renal function, either acute renal failure from a medication that they're taking, or if they have chronic renal failure, 
that might be exacerbated from dehydration or medications like diuretics, think about that before you prescribe other medications that could worsen renal function or perhaps just that need to be renally dosed like we talked about. And then how can we prevent adverse drug events? Well, thinking twice before we prescribe high-risk meds, thinking about available alternatives like we talked about, and then thinking about their risk factors such as age, renal dysfunction, frailty, like I mentioned, For example, avoiding dangerous medication combinations. And this is going to be a topic of a whole other podcast. This, I think, is going to be episode one of 500 in the adverse drug events in older adults. But things like Levaquin and Coumadin, or Coumadin and pretty much anything, Coumadin and water. Coumadin has so many different interactions, you just have to be very cautious. And then another theme is to start low and go slow. If you have to use a medication that's risky, use a lower dose and space out the dosing. And then have a frequent recheck plan, either for the patient as an inpatient or close outpatient follow-up for medication titration, checking their renal function, their potassium, their INR, whatever it is. So we'll have a bunch of references in the show notes. Feel free to leave a comment. Connect with me on Twitter at CLShenvy. And it's been a pleasure having you, Leah. I wish I could just download all your information into my brain. It's just amazing. So thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us. Thank you for having me join you. As a reminder, GemCast is intended for clinicians. Please see our full disclaimer on the website, soundcloud.com slash GemCast. Thanks for listening.